Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. This is a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. I'm so happy to uh, be coming into uh, your ear holes. I'm so happy to be uh, be able to speak to you today. I'm just having uh, just a couple of things that have been rattling around in my head, and uh, here's a good way to get them out. So I figured that's what I'd do. Uh, uh, since this is a show that I've been sort of uh, allowed, uh, where I'm allowed to sort of think out loud about, you know, what's going on uh, in the world of the church, in the world of media, in the world of literature, stuff like that. So, uh, and and how those things sort of uh, tr- in- intersect with ministry and faith. Um, and I, I think that's a fun thing to do, but I also think it's a necessary thing to do as so much of our culture today is um, is is something that we consume and we move on from. Uh, hopefully this little show allows you to sort of digest on some of those things a little bit more and perhaps maybe introduce you to things you haven't thought about and you are allowed to think about uh, a little bit. And, uh, and anyways, hopefully it's, it's encouraging and enjoyable uh, for you. So uh, before we get there, uh, here's the word from the sponsor, Fresh Roasted Coffee, of course. Uh, I'm excited uh, to still be partnering with them, and uh, I'm drinking some right now. Uh, but uh, we're going to hear that, and then we'll dive into what we have on the docket this morning. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. So what about this? Um... In this little segment, I've been kind of wanting, I've been hovering around this topic for a while. I've been talking to some of my friends about it, and I just figured I'd kind of share and maybe uh, vomit all my thoughts on you, I guess. Um, So uh, usually uh, when the Animation House Pixar releases a new movie, uh, it's something that I'm very much um, a fan of or I'm very much excited to um, to sit down and enjoy and watch um, the. We, I don't have to go over the rich history of Pixar animation and all their feature films. It's it's sort of a known fact. They are the ones that you can always count on. You know, as long as I have been alive, really, um, Pixar has been the animation house that you go to for a very strong, well put together film. Uh, whereas DreamWorks was the studio house, you know, that would do 
some like slapstick humor, a movie that was fine. It was okay. It was decent, but it was usually filled with a lot more crass humor, humor that just was annoying, or even a story that was very much not as well put together. There was no real emotional punch. Um, you can, if you compare the DreamWorks, um, um, feature films versus Pixar, you can kind of see that play out with a lot of the movies they've released. But it's so interesting how this is sort of where where we are as a society, as a culture. Um, so this year, Pixar released their very latest movie, a movie entitled Lightyear, um, which is <laughs> just a bizarre premise for a movie, this 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 movie, Lightyear. So uh, in the movie, which was released, I believe, in 1995, Toy Story, which is, you know, the first fully animated feature film and all that kind of stuff, and it won Pixar awards, and it launched them into the stratosphere of animation studio houses, all that kind of stuff. That, uh, Toy Story was the thing. It was their, it was their flagship sort of film and film series now um, to sort of bank on. And within that movie, of course, you have the character of Woody, the, the, the cowboy uh, sort of uh, doll that Andy plays with. And then you also have uh, Buzz Lightyear. He's the spaceman astronaut action figure that he gets at his birthday. And he's the one that, you know, it, it, jealousy ensues and, and misadventure ensues. All, okay, all of that. So we have Buzz Lightyear as an animated character in this fictional world that uh, Toy Story lives in. And now we are getting, in 2022, the supposedly real-world sort of backstory to this fictional toy, except this real-world backstory is also animated too, but it's made to look like... A real story. It's so confusing how they've pitted this movie to be what it is. Um, so it's the it's the real backstory behind a fictional toy in this universe that Pixar lives in, um, and it's telling the story of this astronaut. And and and, and to be honest, honest with you, um, I have not seen the film. I have done a lot of study on the film. I have done a lot of, but I could even tell just from the very first preview that this movie was not going to land. And that's not even related to some of the things I'm going to get to. Um, it's sort of billed as this sci-fi sort of homage. So there's a lot of beats that are familiar if you've loved science fiction movies from the past. This will have a lot of, of similar sort of feeling uh, sequences and elements and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's not off to a good start. In fact, it's one of the worst opening uh, Pixar movies at the box office. Um, it's getting absolutely roasted right now by the action, ironically enough, by the DreamWorks movie Minions, uh, or, or one of the Minions movies. There's a new Minions movie, so if you like those little yellow bubble uh, creatures that talk gibberish and they're kind of funny... Um, there's a new movie out about that, and it's absolutely killing Lightyear right now, which is just the most ironic thing. And I and I don't think it is is exactly equal to this, but I think it has something to do with sort of what Lightyear was doing and sort of the word of mouth marketing that sort of spread about the movie, which is just the fact that within Lightyear, there's a very overt 
very favorable view of LGBTQ relationships and all of it packaged as sort of, quote, entertainment for your children. Um, and I think there was something disconcerting there. Even, it, it, you know, put to bed the idea that um, that uh, this, you know, that, that, that Christians and the church ought to make a compassionate, although uncompromising stance against um, such atrocities uh, with, within the realm of relationships. But regardless of that, there's this also this notion that there's this agenda being sort of force-fed into the minds of our children. And I think that that's where some of the backlash has stemmed from. Now, I, I'm no social analyst. I'm no sort of, I'm, I'm no pundit or anything like that. I love movies. I can speak to that. But even as a parent, um, I know that this is somehow wrong. <laughs> even, you know, e even if I don't like, you know, preach on something that's immoral, I know that this is, you're, you're, you're indoctrinating my children on what to accept and perceive as normative, and I I think there's more than more than a few parents that are uh, a little bit upset by that notion, that are a little bit um, confused as to who 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 do these producers and story writers think that they are that they know what my kids should believe and watch. And, and, and again, I, I know that some folks out there will say, well, Disney's been doing this for a long time. And I would agree with you, actually, that some of the, um, the, the sexual perversion that is within a lot of Disney movies in, in the not-too-distant uh, past, they, they've been there for a long time. This is not an... Lightyear is getting a lot of this sort of talk because it's the most recent. Um, I think also it is the most overt, but um, I think it's a failure to say that this is like, you know, the only one. Um, it, it, it's a failure to, to only single this one out. But it is interesting how this is starting this conversation um, because I think it is a reminder um, for parents, especially parents who have conservative values, I would say parents who claim to be Christians, who believe in Jesus as their Savior and Jesus as King, to uh, to practice a lot more discernment with what you throw in front of your kids' faces. And I know for me, that's kind of where I, I've landed in all of this, is to be way more discerning with what I allow my kids to watch. It's not just as easy as flipping on a television and saying, okay, kids, watch this so I can just, you know, have a moment to myself. <laughs> um, now it's almost like I have to be viewing what they're viewing too um, to make sure that there's not messages like this that are being subtly thrown thrown their way. Um one of my friends, I, I, well, I say, I'll call him an acquaintance. Uh, say I've done a podcast with him, Samuel James. He's a good guy. He's a great writer. Uh, he's also on Substack. You can find him. I'll link him at the at the in the notes of this show. He has a really good reflection, sort of in this same sort of vein, using Lightyear as sort of a launching off point to talk about uh, this. I would say current cultural dilemma, especially for um, Jesus believing parents. 
Um, and he has this great line that I think is worthy of our attention and worthy of our consideration. He says, quote, my most important question in times like these is how to cultivate an ethic of Christian perseverance rather than reactivity, end quote. And I think that that's a good, that's a good point to make. Um, rather than just reacting to what the culture and what society is pumping out, I think there is a grave need for an ethic of, if I can say this, Christian perseverance and pioneering in the sense that we're not reacting to the, what the culture is doing. Rather, we are sort of making culture. Um, again, this is not I don't think this is a moment in which the church needs to circle the wagons and and, and sort of just... Uh, boycotting is not the answer. You know, there's times like these when all of a sudden you see all those posts on Facebook where we need to boycott this um, because that'll get their attention. Really, I, I don't think that's the answer. Um, and frankly, only because if you we were to boycott every sort of corporation that was promoting or supporting or or was sort of maintaining an agenda like this, um, you would basically be boycotting everything. Um, I But I think what this is, is a great sort of moment to be mindful of just two things that uh, they, they come to my mind, is just that um, the need, or I should say this, that there's an urgent need for discernment in this present moment. Um, but I would also say that this is a reminder that, that the war is real. Uh, the spiritual conflict with which those who are in the kingdom, we've been brought into the kingdom of faith by the blood of Jesus. And because of that, we are called to be vigilant. We are called to be on our guard, to be discerning, be faithful, be compassionate. Um, because as Paul talks about in Ephesians, that you know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Um, this is definitely an influence, yes, that, that people, flesh and blood, uh, they are embracing, but it is, is, an, is an embrace of the evil one. It is an embrace of everything that is opposite of what the gospel promotes. And it, it, it can seem chaotic. It can seem like we are embracing disarray. Um, and it's interesting that this is where we are now with film and entertainment, and again, kids' entertainment. Um, but I think it's a good reminder that um, maybe maybe the church has gotten too close to culture where um, it's good that we sort of open our eyes to perhaps uh, things that we've let slide for too long. Um, that's, that's kind of where I am on this. I mean, um, I'm, I'm thankful that we are in this day and age and, you know, people are, you know, why would you want to raise kids in this, this cultural climate? Well, there's never been an ideal time to start a family, number one. And also number two, uh, there is, I would say a beauty, um, even if it is coming with a lot of <laughs> grief and perhaps a lot of strain, but there is a beauty in clinging to the truths of grace and the gospel in times in which it is difficult. 
Um, I think there's there's always been difficulties with with that's the nature of being a Christian, the nature of calling yourself "I am a follower of Christ" is inherently a countercultural um, proposition. And pledging allegiance, if I can use that phraseology, pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ is at the same time a pledge of resistance towards what the climate, what society, what the world would have you to believe. And I think that that is something that is worth being mindful of. Uh, I think I think many, perhaps in the church, are a little lax in that area. Uh, we aren't as vigilant. We aren't as discerning. We have become casual. We have become nonchalant in the ways in which we engage culture. And you can see this, I think, most predominantly through the entertainment that we um, absorb, that we consume, that we promote, that we are free with talking about on social media that we say this is enjoyable when we know that there is elements that are directly from the evil one that are inherent, that are in those particular pieces of entertainment that we ought really to have no business with at all. And I think there's a moment in which we ought to wake up, that we ought to realize that this is... this thing that we call the church, um, not institution, but the church universal, the church Catholic, if you will, not the Roman church, but the church of all of God's called out, sanctified believers, that this is a moment in which we have been uh, called to demonstrate the love of Christ in this particular. We can do that through ways in which we are discerning with our children. That's loving them rightly. We can do it in ways in which we can speak to the ills of what pieces of entertainment like this promote, while also doing it in a way which reminds them of the love of God that's been there the whole time. Um, That's sort of our calling. I had a great conversation with a friend recently talking about this very thing that, so, you know, it's that sort of that old adage that uh, most of the time I think that um, society knows what Christians are against more than knows what they're for. And I think that Lightyear is a great example. We are against this. We cannot have this. And that is all well and good, and that is perfectly um, understandable, and something that I think that we ought to, uh, we ought to make, you know, we we ought to stand for 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 that. We ought to be able to make that sort of claim. However, by the same token, I think that more than what we're against, the the thing that we should be known for is who we're for. We are for. Jesus Christ, because he is for us, and the message that he dispenses through the gospel is the very message that we have been commissioned to bring to the world. It's the message that all those who are lost and weary find relief, find fulfillment, find peace, find pardon, find satisfaction in the person of Christ alone. And we can share that message, we can, we can proclaim that message without being jerks. <laughs> I was talking about this just recently 
in a sermon I preached that, you know, I think in our present moment we are called to make a stand. But that inherently doesn't mean we get to be jerks with how we make that stand. Um, we are to, called, as First John reminds us, to share the truth in love, and that sharing of the truth in love is to be without compromise, of course, but it is truth in love. Truth without love would probably come across as a brick in the face, doing no good to anyone. Love without truth would just be a fuzzy blanket that's thrown on someone. There's no substance, there's no true uh, meaning there. It's just fluffy. The Christian, I think, in 2022 has been given a pretty challenging calling, but one in which I think the Spirit of God himself has. He's the one that's with us. He's the one that's there for us. He's the one that allows us to, to carry on in these particular moments to share the love of God with those who need it. So, in a way, I'm actually thankful for Lightyear, even though it's, it's pretending that something is normative when it is not. Actually, what it's pretending as normative is an abomination in God's eyes. And yet, at the same time, it reminds me that my kids' souls are on the line whenever I turn on Disney+, Plus, whenever I turn on Netflix. They have souls, and they have souls that will spend somewhere in eternity. And really, it's even though it's not quote-unquote up to me, but it is part of my duty as their parent, as their father, to guide them in the way that they ought to go, to trust, to entrust their lives to the Holy Spirit, uh, his wisdom, to his truth, and to um, to embrace that rather than embracing what the world says is right. I think that that's, that's where I am on Lightyear. Um, hopefully that wasn't too rambling for you, but I'm thankful. Uh, I'm thankful that I'm, uh, that, that God has given us this moment in which we are allowed to, uh, allowed to sort of practice our discernment, if you will, to practice our vigilance. Um, it's sort of that, 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 that notion, you know, if you pray for courage, you will be given an instance in which you are, are forced to be courageous. If you pray for patience, there's going to come a situation in which patience is the last thing that you want to display. And I think the same here. Uh, we pray for the church to be built, to be vigilant, to be strong on what it believes. I think that's where we are. We're in a moment in which it's way easier to fold, way easier to compromise, way easier to not make a stand. And so here we are, and this is the moment we've been given. <laughs> like, now I'm getting really rambling because now I'm jumping from light year. I'm going to quote Gandalf, <laughs> uh, but it's like in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf says, we don't get to choose the time that has been given to us. All we get to decide is what to do with the time that has been given to us. That decision is sort of the decision that I think Christ talks about, um, you know, as he comes and divides sort of everyone, not into camps of race or religion or anything or gender or anything. Jesus' sort of dividing line 
is faith and unfaith. And that's where it boils down to, and that's that's where we are. This is a moment, um, as it always is for the church, the moment in which we live is a moment for faith to be displayed, faith that is beyond us, faith that that we have to rely on someone else to make us faithful. Um, and I think that's a good thing. We are in this moment where we cannot persist unless we are dependent. And thankfully, the one that we're dependent on is none other than Yahweh himself. Um, so uh, thank you. Those are my thoughts on Lightyear. Uh, what, uh, what have I been preaching on? So I'm getting ready this coming week, actually, to finish up a series on Sunday evening on the prophecy of Malachi, uh, which I've been really, I've really loved preaching through. It's such a timely book. And in fact, it goes along with much of what I've just sort of rambled on. Um, basically, the premise of Malachi, as I have come to discern it, is base, is just a four-chapter sort of diatribe against the church. It would be technically uh, targeted at the priesthood of God, specifically the priesthood of Judah. As the uh, sort of exiles return home, there is this very uh, corrupt and perverted sort of way in which they approach the liturgy of God's house. And Malachi spends the better part of three chapters, four chapters, calling out the priests for the ways in which they've really fumbled their calling. They have not been vigilant. They have not been resolved or dedicated or determined to uphold the truth, the purity, the the relevance, the resonance of God's word for the people of God. And um, what I love, though, as even as Malachi is is issuing this prophecy of judgment, and then very clearly Malachi is that. It's a prophecy of judgment. Underneath it all, at the base level of this whole entire book, is the love of God that's been there the whole time. He very clearly says at the beginning that he is a God who loves these people, even as he's about to call them out for the ways in which they have failed him, for the ways in which they have fumbled what God had given them, the blessings that God had bestowed upon them. Even despite that, God says, I'm a God who doesn't change, Malachi 3.6, and also over and over again, he reminds them that there is an opportunity to this wonderful word that he uses, Malachi does throughout, this word return. So even despite the people's disregard, the priests' disdain, perhaps even, for the things of the Lord, the Lord makes a way for them to return to him. And isn't that, I think, the heart of Scripture, the heart of the gospel, the heart of God's revelation to man is just a heart that is willing and ready to embrace those who have strayed, um, that's who this God is. He's not a vindictive tyrant and ornery overlord. He is a God of love who doesn't change in his love, even and despite all of the ways in which we fail him. Uh, I think Malachi is a wonderfully timely book for our time, one in which I think all of the church ought to study and read and take to heart. It shows us the Maker's love. Um, so I'm really excited to be finishing up that series this coming Sunday. 
As for what I'm reading, I'm still in the midst of reading this book by Lewis Allen called The Preacher's Catechism. You may be familiar with catechisms, perhaps when you were a young lad or lass in the church. Um, it's really just simple, succinct questions and answers which gear the questioner and the answerer to fully grasp the truth of the theology that they claim to believe. Uh, you have so many catechisms and confessions. The most notable, perhaps, is uh, the Westminster Catechism, or we could even go to the Heidelberg uh, and so on and so forth. But here Lewis Allen uh, sort of does the same thing, but in a different way, and specifically for preachers, those who are called to proclaim God's Word from the pulpit on Sundays. Um, what he does is give them sort of a catechism for that particular office and calling. Um, it's no secret that the preacher's job is one that is fraught with many difficulties, <laughs> There's the misgivings about the preacher's worthiness. There's the remarks that the preacher receives from his congregants and, and audience. There is the influences that often try to vie for his attention. All of these different sources of comment, of perhaps confusion or even perhaps distraction, can weigh so heavily on a preacher's shoulders. And here what Lewis does is give succinct chapters to remind the preacher of not only the significance of his calling and office, but the beauty of it, the resonance of it, the significance of it. And I think through these short chapters, he does a great job at getting at the heart of what the pastoral office is. And so I highly recommend it to you if you're a preacher, especially, even if you're not, though, if you're a lay elder or something like that, I think this book would be very beneficial to you to sort of grasp and see what it is that the preacher goes through um, on a weekly, perhaps even daily basis. So The Preacher's Catechism, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying that book. It's a, it's a good and helpful read, which sort of brings me to the bulk of what I've wanted to talk about. I've kind of meandered for a little bit longer than what I thought, so I'll try and hasten through this next topic, although it's not a topic that I think is one that should be hastened through. Uh, so recently on the Heidel blog, which is R. Scott Clark's sort of uh, uh, corner of the internet, if you will, um, he, uh, R. Scott Clark, really promotes a very heavily reformed view of theology, of the gospel, of the church, but I've greatly loved learning from his writing, writings, um, and recently he uh, published a three-part sort of testimony from one named Mike Abendroth, and this testimony is all about his departure from lordship salvation to sort of reformed soteriology. So he hails out of this upbringing of lordship salvation theology, and he talks about sort of the fallacies, the flaws in such a view of the gospel, and why it is that the reformed view of salvation and theology is, in his mind, the view in which scripture comes to life. Um, now, if you've never sort of heard of Lordship Salvation. Perhaps you have, even if you are just sort of colloquially familiar with the church. Lordship Salvation sort of views this notion that the, that the gospel is about surrender. It's about our 
surrender. It's about our commitment, this idea that we not only accept Jesus as our Savior, we adhere to Jesus as our Lord in sort of this almost two-step phased process of becoming a quote-unquote sanctified Christian, so to speak. And I think there's a lot of fallacies with the ideas that lordship salvation promotes, but one of them is that it makes the gospel not a promise. It makes it sort of this exhortation, almost a challenge, almost a conscription, if you will. And actually, if you preach the gospel rightly, I think it only leaves you with two options, which is either to view it, and in fact, this is what Mike Abendroth even says, the gospel leaves you with two options. He says, quote, number one, option one is surrender, yield, treasure, desire, submit, and or commit. Or option two, believe, trust, receive, accept, and rest. And only one of those two options, I think, is the option that the gospel according to Jesus, if you will, presents. And I think it's the latter option. The gospel engenders a believing, trusting reception and acceptance and resting in the work of Christ, period. That is a promise. There is no uh, sort of further necessary surrender that is involved. Lordship salvation at its at its bones, if you will, is an attempt to control what grace does, the promise of grace, to change us, to chisel us, to mold us and fashion us into the image of God's Son. Lordship of Salvation just says that we, we humans, are able to guarantee those results by the ways in which we surrender, in which we adhere and cling to the things that God's Word says. But in fact, that's what the Spirit is for. You see, the truth of the matter is that God won't ever unadopt you, even if your surrendering sucks, <laughs> even if the ways in which you practice your Christianity, if you will, um, aren't as up to par as what they should be. Uh, that's the work of the Spirit. You see, I think Lordship Salvation is an incendiary to assurance. Mike Amendroth writes this, quote, A Christian needs the gospel. Jesus is not only for justification, but for sanctification. Jesus is both for us and in us. Jesus for pardon and Jesus for power. Examine Jesus and his works ten times the amount of time you examine your fruit and evidence of God's work in your life. And I think that that is really the referendum on Lordship Salvation. So often what it does is it leads to this idea that we can find assurance of our eternal standing in the ways in which we have surrendered, in the ways in which we have become sanctified by our disciplinary efforts and measures and straining. But in fact, the only assurance of eternal salvation, the only assurance we have ever had that we are right in the eyes of God the Father is because we are resting in the work of God the Son. I think Christians everywhere should read these three articles from Mike and read about how it is so important to rest in the gospel of Christ alone. His finished work alone is the only way in which we can approach eternity with faith, with hope, with assurance. 
What should you remember as we sign off? I'll leave you here today with a quote from Lewis Allen's Catechism, uh, the book I was referencing earlier. He writes, quote, Sunday by Sunday, our work must show our hearers that God is the one who lives, rules, loves, and speaks all to his own glory. Week by week, the preacher, along with the church, evidences the fact that there is only one mover and shaker of our times, and that is God alone. And he's the one who is living and ruling and loving and speaking his will for his own glory into our times, throughout all of our times. I'm thankful that we are able to bank and trust and rest in that God. Thanks for listening. I hope you've been uh, blessed by this particular episode. It might have been meandering and rambling at times, but I trust that the Spirit will encourage you uh, by some of the thoughts that I have been able to share, by perhaps some of the messages and articles that you uh, are able to discern and read from. So I appreciate all of your support, your listens, your comments. uh, And if you haven't, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. You can do so right here on Substack or on Apple and Spotify and all those other places where you get podcasts. So uh, thanks for listening. See you on the next edition of Ministry Minded. God bless you.